My guest today is Robert Downen. He is a reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. How you doing? Thank you for having me. Good, good. I'm doing, I'm doing well. Could you uh, just start by telling us what you cover at the Houston Chronicle? And could you trace the arc of your reporting on the issue of abuse in the SBC over the last few years? Sure. So, well, as of Tuesday this week, I'm technically a temporary, um, my religion reporting is going on a hiatus for a little bit because unfortunately uh, the pandemic is about, about where it was in this time during, or during the summer. Um, so I'll be doing a little bit of uh, more COVID reporting for the immediate future. But as far as the kind of road here, so with regards to abuse of faith, um, our investigation in the Southern Baptist sex abuses, um, you know, I've told this story a few times and every single time kind of just, it, it's still bizarre to me how organic everything um, came together. So I was a uh, Hearst fellow, which is a um, kind of, I say glorified intern, but basically it's, it's, it's our uh, national media company has this program where they send reporters to two different newspapers for one year rotations, kind of early career developments um, for early reporters. And so I was in my second year of that working as a general assignment reporter for the Houston Chronicle, just like sifting through federal court records one night. I think it, like I was new to Houston. I think it might have even been like on a Saturday night because just because I had no social life or anything. But <laughs> and I came across um, there had been an update uh, in the federal court system to the lawsuit against Paul Pressler, who is a very well-known Southern Baptist figure and kind of a kingmaker in Texas. Conservative politics at one point was in line to be the first first head of the Office of Government Ethics under George H.W. Bush, though that nomination was withdrawn later. And so there had been a lawsuit filed probably three months earlier uh, by a former member of Pressler's youth group. The, the guy, guy was now in his 50s. But he had alleged in the lawsuits that he was in prison, you know, finishing up one of his multiple prison stints he's gone through for uh, drugs and alcohol, um, mm-hmm. DUIs, that kind of stuff, and had an outcry statement to a prison psychiatrist in which, uh, you know, he says that he, he realized that he had been abused for years by Pressler. And so he filed suit against Pressler and a handful of other uh, Southern Baptist churches in the area as well as the Southern Baptist Convention and a few other figures, including uh, I believe Paige Patterson was a uh, defendant in that lawsuit at one point as well. And so, you know, initially when that lawsuit came out, I think there was some skepticism. You know, it was covered by all the major Texas outlets just because of who Pressler was. But the claims that were being made were really outside of or were outside of the statute of limitations for civil suits. And, um, you know, there were some other things in there just at first glance where it was kind of like, uh, you know, it, 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 it seemed it, it was a bizarre case. I'll say that. And so, you know, everyone kind of wrote about it. And then we did what newspapers do these days, which is kind of, you know, unfortunately don't have the manpower to be following every development in these cases. And so I was on federal court records one night and saw that it had been moved to federal courts from Harris County, where Houston is. And so I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, why did it get moved? And so I started sifting through it, realized that the Southern Baptist Convention had had argued that this suit was a violation of their First Amendment rights, which is a federal question and therefore has to go into the federal court system. And so while I was just kind of sifting through this, like probably thousand pages of documents that had since been submitted in this case, I came across this lawsuit settlement between Pressler and the plaintiff in the current suit for half a million dollars for physical abuse, not sexual abuse, or I'm sorry, physical assault or simple assault rather. 
uh, not sexual assault, just assaults in 2004. And so, you know, it was a half million dollar lawsuit that uh, had been made public only as part of this loss, uh, part of the new lawsuit. And so that kind of, you know, I started thinking, okay, if there's merit to one of these guys' claims, maybe what, how much merit is there to the claims that he's also making that Pressler's alleged abuses were concealed with help from Southern Baptist officials. And so that turned into me calling some, you know, activists, bloggers, um, lawyers, people who have been monitoring this stuff really quickly. And it kind of just like one case became 10 cases, became 30, became 50, et cetera. And so I was sitting on, you know, working my day job or working nights at the Chronicle. And then during the day, just sifting every single court system and news archive system I could for Baptist sexual abuse cases until I was at about 500 or 600. Then I uh, finally got it, you know, got, I was, like I said, kind of a glorified intern at the time. And so got it in front of the eyes of the editors at the paper and they realized we were onto something and added two more investigative reporters, uh, John Tedesco and Lisa Olson, as well as uh, photographer John Shapley and a team of data people. And basically over the next six months, we that's when we really, really started digging into um, what became Abuse of Faith. That published in February of 2019. A week later, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee had their first meeting at which J.D. Greer, President J.D. Greer, gave the first big speech about it. There were 10 churches he said that should be reviewed, that uh, you know those, those reviews were later closed very controversially. But um, And then you know, since then, we've just continued. We've put out at least 60, maybe 70 by now stories on SBC abuse. We're in Birmingham for their uh, annual meeting in June of 2019 because they didn't have one last year. And there, uh, that's when they've kind of, that was when they did two things. They passed a constitutional, they advanced the constitutional amendments um, that basically changes what the criteria for uh, cooperation in the SBC is um, to include, you know, churches that are found to have wantonly disregarded or mishandled or concealed abuses were no longer what's called in friendly cooperation with the convention. And then the bigger thing that they did was they empowered a standing committee they already had called the Credentials Committee, which that committee had previously, it, it was kind of, uh, kind of a they, they, they kind of just check the boxes on any church that sent delegates to the SBC's annual meetings, um, make sure that they basically had, had given money to the, the, pool, the pool donation fund that uh, the SBC has and a few other minor criteria. But they added to that, um, or what they did was they allowed that credentials committee to um, accept complaints about churches that have, uh, you know, complaints about how churches have handled abuse and conduct reviews or inquiries into them and potentially refer them to for removal from the broader convention. And um, unfortunately, you know, after that, they had in October of 2019, they had a they changed the entire theme of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's three day conference to focus solely on abuse. Um, they've unveiled a bunch of different curriculum and there have been a bunch of other smaller things but you know what what happened at the 2019 meeting in Birmingham has really been the most concrete policies that have been unveiled since then uh, given that last year's meeting was canceled because of COVID so. So according to the the folks you've talked to who who are urging institutional reform um, how have SBC churches not the convention as a whole we'll come back to that uh, but how have churches and other entities within the convention 
enabled serial sexual abuse? You know, I, I, it's really a mixed bag. And I think, I think it's worth kind of backtracking a little bit here just to talk about, you know, what, how the SBC is structured because it does, it is uh, very important to this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, let me backtrack. So what we found just from skimming court records, doing keyword searches, you know, just kind of scouring any public database that we could, we got to 700 victims since 1998, upwards of 400 cases involving church volunteers or leaders who had been accused of misconduct. Nearly all of those were criminal and nearly all of them ended in convictions or plea deals. We had a handful of you know, civil cases where we were able to you know, f- find enough in the documents we had available to us to, you know, feel comfortable saying that this was a, 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 you know, legitimate claim, but overwhelmingly it was cases that went through the criminal court system. And so in the initial, when we initially rolled out our, our findings, there were some people who, you know, got out their calculators and said, oh, well, 14 million people in the Southern Baptist Convention, 700 victims, like, is this really as widespread as, as it's being discussed? And I think the really important thing to consider there is that, or, or I, and there are also people who, I, who wanted to compare it to the Catholic Church scandal. And that's where I think there's a really important difference here is because the Catholic Church is obviously a very hierarchical. Um, there's a system of governance. People answer to people above them, bishops who answer to cardinals, et cetera, et cetera. And so... Um, the, and and also, you know, the Catholic Church is one of the best record keeping institutions probably in human history. So when you do see all these attorneys general investigations into, into dioceses and archdioceses across the country, those are aided in huge part by the fact that there are all these, you know, lists that are now becoming public of people who had faced allegations. Uh, but with the SBC, we're talking about 47,000 churches that cooperate with one another, but don't even really have any you know, concrete ordination standards, um, really no record keeping, no record sharing. And so when you think about that and think about, you know, what we know about how rarely sex abuses are reported, let alone um, prosecuted, we have no, no doubt that that is just the tip of the iceberg. And that's something that SBC leaders have also said. And so getting back to your point, your question about how different churches have handled it, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. And I do think, you know, the fact that we were able to find that or many of these cases did go through the criminal court system obviously tells me that, you know, many of these churches did do the right thing. They did handle it. They did call police. Um, but there were also many, many cases we found where victims weren't believed, were, for lack of a better term, blamed, asked to forgive all these really, you know, really destructive things for people trying to recover from truly traumatic experiences. So, okay, so you found uh, cases where, where there there was a victim who'd been abused and then instead of reporting the abuse to the police that the victim was encouraged to forgive and and just move yes on? oh yes that was that was that that was a huge part of it um we found mm-hmm. cases where one of the women we profiled in our first story she was uh, asked to get an abortion that was not completely unheard of there were all sorts of things like that and you know like I said, I don't, I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say that every single church handled these, this poorly, but enough of them did handle it poorly where we felt compelled to make that a central thesis of our work, um, not just because it was a trend, but also because the damage um, that, that that has done to, sur- I, I should say victims, because not all of them are survivors, primarily because of this, you know, being asked to forgive someone when you're eight years old and they're 30 years old 
for having been abused, you know, for having abused you, you know, some of, some of those people ended up committing suicide. Some, you know, uh, ruined their lives or ended up dying from drugs and alcohol, all sort, really all sorts of outcomes. And that's why we kind of felt so compelled to make it such an important part of the story, because while not every, while most of the cases weren't, as far as we could tell, mishandled, enough of them had been mishandled and the consequences were so dire that, you know, it, 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 it was obviously something that we wanted to uh, shine a light on. So. So the SBC, as you said, has taken some steps uh, in response to calls for reform, uh, for example, the Caring Well Initiative. So how have these steps been received by survivors and advocates? Do they, do they think that the steps are enough? So survivors, much like many SBC leaders, have said, while these steps are good first steps, they are just that, first steps. And because of the, structural, the structure and organization of the SBC, and because um, it really is kind of an almost like wild, wild west system, there have been for years now calls for... Um, more expansive and wide reaching, wide wide reaching protocols, including something like a database that people could can, that churches could consult of uh, you know ministers, uh, pastors, etc., who had been credibly accused of abuse. That reform was one of a package of reforms that were uh, requested by survivors in 2008, which I know we'll get to, and that is still kind of the the thing that they're calling for um, with regards to the policies that are currently in place. They're, they're, they're definitely first steps. And as a reporter, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a question I wrestle with a lot because, and I think a lot of survivors do as well, because yes, progress has been made on this front, but taking the first step is just that again, it's a first step. And so with, with, for instance, this credentials committee, um, we're already seeing a lot of, a lot of complaints, um, about that because it is not, uh, to quote one survivor and person who's been advising the SBC on it, it's, you know, it's basically toothless. They don't have the power to really force churches to cooperate with these inquiries. They don't even call them investigations. They're just inquiries. And so hopefully going into uh, the SBC's next meeting in June, there there has been some more talk about trying to adopt more wide ranging things that and you know holistic reforms rather than rolling out some curriculum and hoping that churches read it and take it seriously so the, the reforms that survivors have, have pushed for like the uh, database are there are there any other reforms other than the database that the that the SBC has refused and what reasons does the SBC give for resistance to the database and, and other reforms like I said, there was a package of reforms in 2008, um, but they all kind of, no, I shouldn't say all, but many of them kind of, you know, overlap with this idea of the database and what the database was trying to accomplish. And so, you know, in 2008, the reason that was given by the SBC executive committee at the time was going back to what I was saying about the lack of hierarchy, um, SBC churches abide by local church autonomy and really don't have to answer to any kind of SBC leadership. They're not really compelled to do much. Uh, there's really, you know, as long as prior to our story, as long as you weren't affirming homosexuality, hiring women as pastors, and you were giving money to the 
the SBC's cooperative program, you were pretty much in good standing with the SBC. And so the, you know, every single time that these reforms have come up, whether in the wake of our story or in 2008, the, the idea of local church autonomy is, is, you know, pretty much always cited as the big reason why something could or could not be tenable. Um, and with the database, uh, which is obviously the, the big thing that survivors have requested, the question became, you know, who's going to maintain this? Since we can't force churches to report something to a central registry, I mean, will it be toothless? A, lo a lot of stuff like that, you know, of who, who just oversight and what powers the SBC actually has to compel that. And so, you know, there are a lot of survivors who hear that and say, well, yeah, that the database wouldn't be an end all and be all collection of every single person who's been accused, but at least it would be an attempt to at least at least there would be some some sort of resource, which uh, whereas, you know, as compared to to in 2008 and, and really prior to our, our reporting where there really wasn't any mechanism whatsoever to bring attention to your abuse or the mishandling of your abuse to uh, a higher power than your local congregation and pastor so. So I wonder if, if survivors or advocates point out that the SBC has mechanisms for whatever you want to call it, but basically overseeing whether uh, given a church in the in cooperation mm -hmm. uh, or not in cooperation, as it were, whether a given church has, say, a female pastor. So mm -hmm. do surely advocates have pointed out that like, well, there are mechanisms to oversee that. Why not employ similar mechanisms to oversee the database or what have you? Right. And I well, I think and that's where it gets tricky. And that's why there is also a big push um, and has been a big push for not just the database, but also the use of third parties rather than, you know, the SBC or an SBC church investigating or making inquiries into itself. Because, you know, it it's a pretty cut and dry question of, do you guys have a female or openly gay pastor on your staff? Now, when we get into questions of, and, and, and you know, it's a pretty clear cut, clear and cut thing when it comes to do you have a convicted sex offender on staff which because of our reporting is now also something that can get you booted but the bigger question and I think the one that's really going to be a challenge moving forward and has always been a challenge is how do you deal with these cases where for instance you know a, a, a church pastor did some you know someone committed an abuse 15 years ago that person has since moved on the pastor who was overseeing them and may have mishandled the abuse has moved on because of the way the SBC is set up. They don't have the ability to revoke ordinations or defrock anyone. Um, the credentials committee as it's styled really only has the, the power to punish a church, not an individual. And so when you get into these more murky questions of concealments, and I mean, there's also, you know, the simple fact that the law enforcement doesn't really pursue failure to report that often because it is a really difficult thing. And if law enforcement and prosecutors and trained investigators are not uh, pursuing those types of charges because they understand how complicated they are, it, it, it does beg the question, you know, to what degree does this group of SBC leaders who are on the credentials committee, you know, you know, to what degree can they actually investigate any of these things? And we're unfortunately seeing a lot of cases where the answer has been pretty much you know, we can't. Um, and I've talked to SBC leaders about that and they have 
or, you know, people on the credentials committee. Um, I had a long conversation with Roland Slade, the chairman of the SBC's executive committee, probably two months ago. And he, you know, acknowledged that there are many, many shortcomings on that front and that, you know, hopefully come June of this year, there will be something uh, rolled out that will kind of try to confront these bigger questions, confront the challenges that are posed by not having a, a third party or group of experts really um, looking into this stuff, so. Often resistance to some kind of policy reform may come in the kind of objection that, well, there are gonna be gray areas and there are gonna be unclear cases, so why do it at all? right? There are going to be difficult cases. And that may very well be true, but it's, there are still going to be some clear cases. <laughs> right. And, and so uh, that's just worth noting, right? The fact that there are going to be unclear cases or, uh, you know, it may not be clear what to do in some cases. It doesn't mean that's not a good reason to not set up a structure for <laughs> right. acting in the cases that are clear. Right. Right. And, 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 and I, and I don't, you know, I, I, like I said, you know, going back to my comments about this being a first step, but exactly that a first step, you know, I think it's easy to point to know if someone has a convicted sex offender on staff. And I'm happy as are many survivors that that is a thing that the SBC was able to address in the immediate wake of our reporting. But that's the easy one. That's the, the more challenging stuff really, you know, the, the biggest challenges I think really are still ahead for the SBC because it is a very complicated system. I, I, I'm not denying that. I think the question is going to have to be to what degree are Southern Baptists willing to, um, I don't want to say sacrifice, you know, rethink their thought, their view of polity and church governments, go governance and local church uh, autonomy when it comes to this specific issue. Because, yeah, there, there, there are many, many cases many, many, many of them that are, are not as simple as, oh, this guy is a convicted sex offender and he's currently working with kids at your church. So, Well, the fact that it took your reporting to get policies implemented on, around having a convicted sex offender working at a church suggests a certain kind of posture, right? <laughs> that, may not, that may not bode well. You know, I, I, I think... You know, and I go back and forth about about this because, yeah, the because of you know, as someone who spent six months trying to find these cases, like I understand why SBC leaders prior to our reporting may not have understood the the extent to which abusers were you know targeting their churches. But at the same time, you know, there were plenty of activists, there were plenty of survivors. I mean, people who have who have you know continued to be prominent and continued to be outspoken in the wake of our reporting, people like Krista Brown, who had been speaking about this for years. And not only were they, you know, in many cases, at best, they were downplayed. At worst, they were, I mean, Paige Patterson in, a, in an email referred to Krista Brown, one of the most prominent SBC abuse survivors and probably the kind of the loudest voice on this issue for more than probably two decades now, said that she and other advocates were just as reprehensible as sex criminals. I mean, mm. so while I do think that the 
Patterson ilk of the SBC are obviously not in the same levels of power and prominence as they once were. It's going to take much more than a few constitutional amendments and curriculum to undo not only the damage done by that type of thinking, but also I don't think I, I think it would be foolish to say that comments like that don't permeate permeate and trickle down to local churches in some way. You know, if you're an SBC church pastor and you see Paige Patterson, who at the time was, you know, the, as revered as a person could be in the SBC among many to, you know, see those kind of comments, of course, that trickles down. And of course, that's, you know, that has an effect on the willingness of survivors to come forward, the the way that churches and not just church leaders, but churches in general are thinking about these things. And so that's another big thing that I uh, I think is, is talking about long-term challenges for the SBC. Um, you know, going back to the Caringwell conference they had in October of 2019, I had mentioned that the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission had overhauled their uh, their three-day conference to focus on our, our, our reporting and abuse more broadly. And, you know, I don't think there's any single person in this world who would say it's a bad thing for churches to spend, or, church, you know, pastors and, and church leaders to spend three days hearing about how trauma, you know, the effects of trauma, the, the insidious ways it can, you know, manifest it years after, after the uh, attack itself, or for them to hear people talk about how to screen for predators and, you know, more practical things like not, you know, like not having, you're having windowed doors in your, in your uh, nursery, that kind of stuff. You know, those are all practical things that, I think are going to help in the long run, but there is this other question that I think is really difficult for the SBC to confront, which is how do you tackle, can you tap, how do you confront the crisis right in front of you while also taking a step back and examining the road that got you here? Um, and I think that's where it does get a lot more difficult and where a lot more of these internal politics within the SBC do, do come into play because, you know, it's easy to talk about the, about abuse and pedophiles in the abstract. But what are you doing when it's when it happened in the when it happens in the church of someone you're, with whom you're friends or with whom you are speaking at conferences or, you know, is, or in, in the church that you now pastor? I mean, and that has to be a huge part of this uh, moving forward. You can't be truly repentant without doing something to correct the errors that you've made. And so that, that has been a difficult point throughout our reporting. And so I'm, hopeful, I'm hoping that as we move forward and now that we've gotten past step one of acknowledging uh, that abuse is occurring, that there will be some more start to dig into the more nuance of this and also start to kind of look not just forward and in the now, but also look backward and, and try to figure out how the SBC got here so that it never happens again. As I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure others told you it's um, immensely important uh, work that you're doing and, and thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I would imagine that in the course of doing this work, you've gotten some some pushback. Uh, has there, have you gotten pushback from folks in the SBC, or has anyone tried to to discredit you or to silence you? So we do have a handful of people who are who continue to to send emails and us and and find objections. But overwhelmingly, I mean, overwhelmingly, the response to our work in the immediate aftermath and since then has been 
you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think there have been many people who have tried to challenge. I, no one's really tried to, no one's yelled fake news at us, really. <laughs> I'll say mm. that. When we started reporting, really did fear, given, given, you know, the general political leanings of the SBC and, you know, the way that the media was being discussed back then and now, that there were going to be a lot of people who just said, oh, look, this is, you know, a, a liberal media organization trying to attack us because of our beliefs. And so one of the reasons we, in, in addition to our first three stories that we put out in February of 2019, we also built a database of roughly 250 people who had been convicted and that's searchable and it's still on our website at houstonchronicle.com and one of the reasons we did do that is because we wanted there to be no you know no room for ambiguity um as far as people saying you know oh well how did they get to this we wanted to show our work effectively and i think that that has really been helpful in as far as the response because we, we published our, our story on a on a sunday in february and i think that next the the Monday afterwards, so eight days later, was when J.D. Greer gave his speech in Nashville to the executive committee. And at, really at no point in that time did I feel that there was any kind of pushback about like about, you know, whether our work was credible. It was um, pretty, I don't want to say well received, but it was received and the, you know, that there was no attempt to try and obfuscate or, or try, I guess, challenge our findings. You know, like I said, we do get people who say, do that thing where they're like, oh, well, I did 700 divided by 14 million and that's 0 .00 by yada, yada, yada. And to their credit, you know, SBC leaders have and almost immediately shot that shot down that kind of thinking. You know, there's a line that J.D. Greer often says, which is, you know, what if one of those data points was your kid? And so as far as just general pushback, there really hasn't been a ton, um, not really any attempts to silence us either. So a thing that I think about a lot when, you know, just thinking about our coverage and where we want to go and where things stand is this question of if we had published our story in February of 2018 rather than February of 2019, what would the response have been? And I say that because in February of 2018, the SBC had not yet gone through the very public and very, very difficult and humiliating scandal involving Paul, uh, Paige Patterson. The Paul Presser lawsuit had gotten some visibility in the public, but it really, you know, hadn't developed into much more than just some basic accusations. Um, and, you know, in the in the year between February 18 and 19, they also had a, a handful of other pretty well known, pretty public and, and difficult scandals involving abuse or impropriety in other parts of the denomination. And so by the time we published our story, I think there had been a conversation ongoing about abuse, not just sexual, but how abuse of power, um, you know, how having people in positions of relatively, you know, unchecked authority can can manifest in all these really terrible things. And so, you know, and, and to their credit, J.D. Greer and ERLC pre or, uh, President uh, Russell Moore, they had put together a team of, of abuse survivors and lawyers and other people um, and experts to start developing policies even prior to our reporting. You know, obviously that became the focal point of the SBC in the wake of our reporting, but I don't necessarily, I, I, you know, I want to be clear that our work was in many ways a continuation of the work that had been ongoing among survivors, amongst advocates, amongst bloggers, um, and really was kind of an inflection point after a year of inflection points on this issue, um, namely with regards to Patterson and Pressler. So, um, yeah. 
So from now moving forward, you mentioned that you're, you are sort of feeling out where the reporting might go. What's your, what's your sense of um, how you might follow this up or, or do you have any ongoing work that you can talk about? So it's, you know, it's, it's been, I'll say this, it's been a frustrating year on that front because going into this time last year, we had, or most of us had no idea that we'd be, that there wouldn't be an SBC meeting and that, you know, that one story would kind of suffocate all of the attention away from, from everything else. And so unfortunately I do, I feel like from a national standpoint and from a you know national policy standpoint, it, it was kind of almost a lost year. Now, SBC leaders would push back on that. They would say, you know, while there haven't been any constitutional amendments passed or anything like that, we are they're, they're still developing curriculum and they're still you know pushing it towards churches. And you know, I think I just talking to local pastors, there are plenty who have had their eyes opened a little bit or you know are have have really begun to take this as seriously as they should because of that curriculum. And, um, but again, like I said, you know, th- that really is this first step. And so the, the, the big story for us right now, you know, in, in the absence of much to report on, on the national policy standpoint is, is kind of just looking towards this next meeting in June to see, uh, you know, what, what, what the conversation is going to be. Because the other thing is that, you know, the, the leadership of the SBC, but when they meet again, in June is, is, is going to be, it's, it's going to, it's, it's not obviously going to be the same leadership with the same momentum as they had going into the 2019 meeting in Birmingham. And so, and meanwhile, you have a combination of, you know, discussions, debates over critical race theory, fallout from the election that have, I think in the eyes of many survivors, and I think justifiably kind of crowded out this conversation about abuse. And so, I, I hope that in the coming months, as we get closer to that June meeting, there's going to be more a, an attempt to kind of wrestle the SBC's attention back towards that issue. But I will not lie. I'm not, I'm not necessarily optimistic about that because the controversy debate, whatever you want to call it, over critical race theory and the election and all these other things have really, I think, drawn a line in the sand for a lot of people. And there's, you know, the SBC, there, there's certainly a divide, to say the least, and is a divided denomination willing to look past their political divides, their views on critical race theory, and then talk about their polity in the context of abuse doesn't seem like a huge likelihood for me, or it doesn't seem extremely likely to me, but I'm hope that I'm uh, surprised come June. I, I think the, the divide around CRT is going to track pretty closely with the divide on whether institutional reforms should be implemented around abuse. And right. that's, my, yeah. that's my sense of the situation. And, and CRT is a distraction from quite a bit, including having serious conversations about race that really have nothing to do with CRT. A lot of the divides, squabbles, whatever you want to call them, the SBC, I mean, these are power struggles. That's really what it is. You know, the, obviously, they're, they're, I'm not denying that many of these people are, 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 their feelings are sincere. I'm not denying that. But how is it possible to have a conversation about church polity and whether churches should rethink their own power? Can you have that conversation in the context of a denomination-wide power struggle? I personally think it's going to be very difficult. I hope that I'm proven wrong, but again, I think it's going to be difficult. There's, there's been 
sort of actually since you agreed to to sit down and have this conversation with me there there's been some de- developments in uh, in the Raleigh Durham area mm-hmm. at, at the church of the current president of the SBC do, do you have any any insight there or anything to to add to do with that yeah so i you know i don't want to get too much into the the details of the case because again it it, it is you know, the, the reason it's being reviewed is because I think there, there are some complicated, you know, and there are gray areas too, I'll say that. Basically what happened was over the summer, um, J.D. Greer's church in Raleigh, uh, the summit hired a guy named Brian Loritz, who had previously been, you know, pastoring churches in the Memphis area and was, you know, pretty well known on the, you know, Baptist preaching circuit and speaking circuit. And so they hired him and almost immediately bloggers and advocates started asking questions about his role in a, in a earlier abuse case involving his then brother-in-law and the, actually the announcer for the Memphis Grizzlies, um, this guy named Rick Trotter, who had been found to have basically, basically he had recorded at least one or two people in the bathroom at the church at, at Loritz's church around 2010. And for whatever reason, that was not reported to police and he went on to a different church um, and was later arrested and convicted for voyeurism. And, you know, it, it later came out Lawrence's church and the other church eventually came out and said, you know, we, we, we had discussed it and he was in, you know, he was getting treatment for sexual addiction, all these types of things. And Lawrence over the summer, you know, did a lengthy sit down with a biblical reporter where he expressed regret for not having called police and a bunch of other things, but has denied that, you know, he covered anything up. He noted that, one of the two victims he said he spoke to at the time in 2010 was a family member and that he had encouraged both to press charges, but I, apparently they had not wanted to. And so while he does, you know, he has come out and said, I, I wish I had handled it differently. There is some, I guess, ambiguity would be the best way to say it about, you know, what he did and didn't know, I think is, is the question that a lot of people have had. And so when he was hired at Summit over the uh, summer, there was this big outcry and until last week, the summit had largely not really talked about it. Um, I know there was some internal conversations about it and obviously conversations with people who have been advising the SBC on abuse matters. But I mean, either way, you know, you have the president of the SBC, his church, even if they, even just the appearance that they, that they were flouting their own rules or, you know, not taking as serious, not taking seriously the, the, you know, the same stuff that they have been preaching other SBC churches to take seriously. I mean, that was itself a big deal. And so last week they announced that they would be hiring a third party to come in and do a full review of Lawrence's hiring and what he didn't, didn't know. And while I understand there, there were many people who came out and said, well, you know, it took six months of survivors you know, yelling about this and pressing them. And finally it happens, like it shouldn't take this long, but I, I go back to, and, and you know, I'm not saying that that's those, those criticisms don't have merits or not justified at all, but I go back to at that caring well conference in October of 2019, I remember Rachel Den Hollander was asked in an interview, what churches have handled this well. And he pretty much said none of them, except for mm-hmm. one who had hired, who had, who had hired, you know, outside firm, and it wasn't even an SBC church. And and so while I completely understand the frustration and anger over the long gap between the outcry over Loritz's hiring and the review of Loritz's hiring, I do think that from a 
standpoint of, I don't want to say, you know, I, I do think it, it, it is important that Summit has turned to a third party firm, which is extremely, extremely, extremely rare in these cases, uh, not just turned to a third party firm, but, you know, turn, turn to a firm that has credibility amongst at least the survivors I've talked to and that they have said that they, they've committed to putting out a fully public report. Certainly they didn't handle this perfectly. I mean, I, I think that they, they've, they've openly said that as well, but as far as hopefully this is a model, I, you know, hopefully their, their decision to hire an outside firm, not the gap that, it, you know, the delay in doing so, but their decision to hire that firm, it becomes a model for SBC churches because that again has been a huge, huge thing for survivors who have, been saying for years now, you can't investigate yourself. You're neither equipped, you're not, you don't have the expertise and you're biased. Whether or not you believe you're biased, you have some sort of bias and, and we can't allow churches to just simply investigate themselves. And so I, that'll be a really interesting thing to see how that progresses ahead of the next meeting as well, because I'm, I'm, I do hope, and I think a lot of survivors hope that, you know, regardless of, of the, the bumpy road to getting that review, that it, it will be kind of, you know, at least show other churches how these, the outcomes of these types of things um, can be, be helped if they do consult people who don't have a dog in the fight and who are, are going to be able to, to speak about it without, without bias. So, All right. Well, Robert, uh, you've been so generous with your time, and I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to sit down and talk with me. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 